Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and often nonsensical way pop culture and nuclear weapons interact. As always, you can listen to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, YouTube. Pretty much anywhere on the internet you can listen to podcasts, we are there. We usually spend upwards of two hours overanalyzing a movie or a TV show, some sort of pop culture portraying nuclear weapons. But today, we continue our mini nuke episode series. Sometimes a piece of pop culture just has a slice of nuclear topics. Maybe a quick plot device or some sort of attempt at using nuclear imagery to spruce up the action. These circumstances don't warrant a full-size episode, but they still deserve to be overanalyzed nonetheless. This is where the mini nuke episodes are deployed. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and nuclear strategy for a living, and I'm joined on Skype by my co-host, Joel. Hi, this is Joel, and uh, I remember serving many serving sizes of popcorn when I worked for two summers at a movie theater, so uh, it makes me eminently qualified to be on this podcast, especially for many episodes. Well, uh, Election Day is tomorrow, November 8th, and we wanted to take a look at one of the most influential ad campaigns in election history. So let's set the stage. Picture this. A young girl is playing in a field of flowers, counting up from one to ten while picking the petals off one of the flowers. She doesn't know all of her numbers yet, but she knows she enjoys being outside in the sun and has plenty of time left in her young life to learn math and all of those adult things. Once she nears the number ten, all of a sudden you hear a loud, scary countdown. When the countdown reaches zero, an explosion is heard off in the distance as the camera zooms in to a now still image of the little girl's eye before the screen fades to a nuclear bomb mushroom cloud. This was the first TV ad of the 1964 presidential election between Democrat President Incumbent Lyndon Johnson and the Republican candidate Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona. other, or we must die. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. Known officially as Peace, Little Girl, but widely understood and known as the Daisy Ad, it only ran one time before it was pulled. On Labor Day, September 7th, the day LBJ officially launched his campaign. It was put on Monday movie night on NBC, a movie of, I think it was called David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba. David, uh, the story of King David, uh, starring Gregory Peck. 50 million people are reported to have watched this uh, advertisement right around 9.50 p.m. Eastern Time. It never mentioned Barry Goldwater by name, but the conclusion of this ad was essentially that whether or not you trusted either candidate to have their control over the nuclear arsenal. And at the time... 
even though largely it was considered by mainstream analysts that LBJ was going to win the election. This is in the aftermath of the assassination of JFK, and the nation didn't want another president that quickly. But the idea behind Johnson's relentless campaign against Goldwater was he wanted a mandate. He wanted a large landslide victory so that he can push forward with his uh, social welfare uh, political agenda. So this is where we get these series of ads. And as we know, it now it ushered in essentially a new era in negative campaigning that we see today over and over and over again, basically anywhere you turn on the television or whatever website you go to. Before this, ads were mostly either boring 30-minute long straight-to-camera spots with the candidate giving essentially a speech on these issues, or it was some kind of jingle-based ad with annoying music that would bury into your brain until election day. Songs like, I like Ike. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike. For president, hang out the banner, beat the drum, we'll take Ike to Washington. Or, Kennedy, Kennedy, Kennedy. Kennedy, 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 Kennedy. And yeah, some of these ads were negative. But the 64 campaign was very different because it introduced the role of emotion, specifically fear. And less less than ads were no longer being used to inform voters, but to persuade voters, specifically on the issue of fear. So, Joel, you've, have you seen this uh, ad before? I know we talked about it a little bit on the failsafe episode of our podcast, episode 9. And I'll have another kind of interesting connection to that later in the, in the podcast. But do you, do you essentially, have you seen this ad before in your non-nuclear life? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, in another life, I, I dabbled in campaign politics uh, a little bit, uh, both in school and then for a few jobs outside of school, especially in school. I mean, is it one of those textbook commercials to understand you know, how campaign advertising works? And that was certainly an example of a single broadcast of a single campaign ad being able to really alter the the tone, I guess, of a of a national election. Uh, you know, I remember. I think that was actually one of the. I took a campaign advertising class at, hmm. when I was in college, and that was, if not the first advertisement, at least one of the first advertisements we watched. And and we of course learned the backstory of you know the the candidates and and why they selected. To put that one single ad, and we, you know, dissected it scene by scene, or mm-hmm. piece of dialogue by t- piece of dialogue, because obviously, when you have thirty seconds, every little piece is intentionally put there. There's nothing accidental about it. So now, today, you know, fast forward, you know, fifty years, and you have, you know, every little line, every single person, every issue being focus grouped. Uh, so you know, it's just amped up even more. But I think that was a one of those key turning points for modern campaign advertising where you, you put something out there that's pretty controversial and, and you kind of sweep up the entire uh, media discussion around it and then it feeds off itself without even having to play it a second time in the case of the Daisy ad. Well, that's great. Let's, uh, well, we weren't around uh, back in 64. I don't think so unless you are aging very well. But let's set the stage quickly so we can have an, an idea of why this ad has left the impact that it has. Uh, on politics, American culture, and in August 29, 1964, uh, LBJ and his press secretary, George Reedy, uh, were discussing what themes to focus on in the upcoming campaign. Because, of course, this was that was odd time when campaigns 
didn't officially last several years. Essentially, around August 64, the August before the November election, uh, they got together and started talking about what themes they wanted to focus on. And George Reedy said, we got to play that Adam theme as heavy as we can, largely because the public was very anxious about the threat of, of nuclear war between the Soviets and the United States. In 61, there was the Berlin crisis, um, deal with a lot of Soviet uh, troop movements right around East and West Berlin. You had the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we all know in October 62. And in a, a poll in 1961, 59% of Americans surveyed uh, were worried about, quote, the chance of a world war breaking out with the threat and use of nuclear weapons. Movies like Dr. Strangelove and Failsafe came out in that year, and books like Red Alert, Belong Tomorrow, On the Beach, Alas Babylon, showed a world full of nuclear risk. The Johnson White House, surprisingly, even convinced the movie studio that had Failsafe to release the movie early, before the election. Which I think is a really interesting thing, because the Johnson administration said, we weren't going to help with the movie, either Failsafe or... Dr. Strangelove, because it showed the chance of nuclear use being possible. But once you got this as the election issue, they said, all right, let's have this movie come out a little bit earlier. It shows a president in uh, Henry Fonda uh, making a cool, calculated, rational decision. Let's have that be like Johnson and everyone else that's a little bit crazy. Let's have them be like Barry Goldwater. So I thought that was a fascinating connection uh, between all of these different things. And before he was uh, assassinated, uh, Kennedy and his campaign team were eagerly wanting Barry Goldwater to be the GOP nominee that they would face in 64. They had planned on hitting him on the, quote, atomic theme, and LBJ's 64 campaign basically took this approach and, and carried it forward. Barry Goldwater was seen by supporters as a plain-spoken, strong leader who would restore traditional American values. He had very strong grassroots support on an anti-government platform, and the party elites hated him. I don't know if that sounds familiar uh, to anyone that you can pick up, Joel, uh, but his campaign slogan was, quote, in your heart, you know he's right. He refused to moderate his positions after winning the primary, and that essentially set the stage for why this ad was so effective because of several positions uh, and statements that he made over the course of his political life. And I'll, I'll list a few of these off because I didn't know about a lot of these before I had done research for this uh, particular episode. So... At one point, he suggested using low-yield atomic weapons to clear out the forests along the Vietnamese and Laos border to make it easier to stop uh, supply lines into North Vietnam, as well as uh, nuking Chinese supply lines into Vietnam. This was a very controversial position at the time. In his book, which was very popular, a big bestseller called The Conscience of a Conservative, he expressed support for, quote, small, clean nuclear weapons that required more nuclear testing. The year before, there was the Partial or Limited Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which prohibited nuclear tests except for those done underground. It was very much supported by the Johnson and Kennedy administrations. Barry Goldwater voted against it. He said, well, during his vote, if it means political suicide to vote for my country and against this treaty, then I commit it gladly. Uh, additional quotes about this, he said, if we're not prepared under any circumstance to ever fight a nuclear war, we might as well just do as the pacifists and the collaborationists propose. Dump our entire arsenal into the ocean. Continue. He mocked JFK over his Cuba policy leading up to October 1962's uh, missile crisis. He urged action, not words. He said Kennedy should have been willing to go to war with the Soviets over Cuba rather than let them humiliate the country. 
He accused opponents of being communist appeasers who would, quote, rather crawl on their knees to Moscow than die under an atomic bomb. That's That one in particular uh, got me pretty good. Uh, he said nuclear weapons were, quote, merely another weapon. He joked about lobbying missiles into the men's room in the Kremlin instead of Kennedy's planned moon mission. He said that NATO commanders should have the authority to use nuclear weapons without the president's order. At the RNC convention, the famous quote from him is, extremism in the defense of liberty is not a vice. So I think when you combine all of these uh, quotes, you kind of get a sense of why the public thought that he might be someone you may not want to have on, the, on the, the nuclear trigger or giving the order for a nuclear bomb. Even Goldwater's primary opponents in the Republican primary, people like Nelson Rockefeller, George Romney, and these other what he called East Coast liberal Republicans, they attacked him along the same lines as these daisy ads. Rockefeller said, quote, How can there be any sanity when he wants to give area commanders the authority to make decisions on the use of nuclear weapons? So this was something that happened for Goldwater way before the general election even came about. So you can kind of get a sense here what the, the dynamics that were taking place before this ad was ever even conceived of, which is why I think it was so effective was because it didn't try to create an image of Goldwater. It basically used the public's initial perception of him and hit that as hard as they possibly could. Didn't have Basically, he was doing their work for him. I know one of LBJ's favorite quotes about this was that Goldwater had already basically taken the rope and he basically tied a noose around his own neck. All we needed to do with these ads was give it a little bit of a tug. And a little bit here, I guess, on the ad agency that was behind the ad in particular. This was a New York-based ad agency called DDB, which stood was uh, the initials for the head at the time, uh, Doyle Bain Bernbach. Bernbach. He made ads for uh, basically products, things like Avis Rental Car, Volkswagen Beetle, and uh, JFK saw the ads, liked them, and hired him to work on his ads. This is how they got looped into the Johnson White House. In an article by Robert Mann, who is a journalist and an investigative journalist, the ad firm's founder, Bill uh, Bernbach, is quoted as saying, Advertising is fundamentally persuasion, and persuasion happens to not be a science, but an art. And he also said, You can say the right thing about a product, and no one will listen. You've got to say it in such a way that people will feel it in their gut. Because if they don't feel it, nothing will happen. So therefore, he wanted to essentially inject emotion and creativity into the very boring political environment uh, that was taking place at the time. Which you definitely see in that ad where, I mean, you just reviewed all of the different comments that were arguably controversial on the use of nuclear weapons for various reasons. You know, a very straightforward ad would just have, like we'll talk about with the Hillary Clinton ad, uh, that kind of echoes mm -hmm. Daisy and, and literally brings it up. You know, they, they show video of Donald Trump, they, they play, you know, clips of it talking about nuclear weapons. But obviously with the Daisy ad, there's no mention of Goldwater. It's merely the child with the, the petals and, and the countdown and then the stark images of, you know, nuclear fire. Yeah. Um, and then they leave it to the viewer. I mean, they, they assume a lot. They assume that the, the person watching the ad knows a lot. And that's when, again, I was literally a student, so I wasn't an expert by any means, but one thing we, we talked about in the class was how much do you have to educate the person who's watching the ad and then how, hmm. to what extent are you relying on their own education on whatever topic you're talking about. And obviously with this ad, they make a lot of assumptions, but it seemed like there was already a firm 
kind of narrative out there as far as him potentially Goldwater having somewhat extremist views or having very, having very strong views about nuclear weapons. And so, like you were saying with the noose, this was the, the, the potentially the pivot point to go from just controversial comments to something that would hit home with your kids and thinking about right. your kids' survival. And it took an ad agency that was willing to break the rules of uh, political advertising. Actually, it didn't even break the rules. They just basically said political advertising is, is boring and won't work, and they brought in their own dynamic style, but focused on this emotion emotional pool as opposed to fact-based or even just issue-based uh, advertising. Right. Um, but, but the interesting thing is that the Daisy ad wasn't actually – wasn't the only ad on this issue throughout the campaign. There was a series of what were referred to as bomb away spots. The first one is an uh, ad called Ice Cream Girl, uh, which was released a week after the Daisy ad. Do you know what people used to do? They used to explode atomic bombs in the air. Now, children should have lots of vitamin A and calcium, but they shouldn't have any strontium-90 or cesium-137. These things come from atomic bombs, and they're radioactive. They can make you die. Do you know what people finally did? They got together and signed a nuclear test ban treaty, and then the radioactive poison started to go away. But now... There's a man who wants to be president of the United States, and he doesn't like this treaty. He fought against it. He even voted against it. He wants to go on testing more bombs. His name is Barry Goldwater, and if he's elected, they might start testing all over again. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. So this is the one where... It's um, a, a voiceover talking about why children should get lots of vitamin C. But one thing that's not very good is strontium, a byproduct of nuclear testing in the atmosphere. So that tries again to hit on those same notes. You don't want your child getting sick from nuclear testing. Oh, by the way, is there someone that we know in the news that wants to resume nuclear testing? You know, figure it out. I guess they assume that everyone uh, had taken maybe uh, advanced chemistry or something like that. Or uh, this. Maybe, yeah. They really, yeah, really respect the American voter. Another ad campaign was called the Atomic Bomb Test Ban. It was a four-minute ad. Uh, it had Russian uh, and U.S. countdowns in Russian and English with a nuclear test, quotes from JFK about the test ban, and Johnson ending with the quote, Those who oppose agreements to lessen the dangers of war curse the only light that can lead us out of the darkness. Pretty, pretty uh, damning lines there. It was another ad I'm sure we can draw comparisons to uh, called the Telephone Hotline ad. It's an ad just a, a picture, a, a telephone ringing, meant to symbolize the U.S.-Soviet hotline, which I'm sure, Joel, you can remember the Hillary Clinton ad from the 2008 primary campaign, the 3 a.m. Oh, yeah. commercial. Yep. Uh, one thing I'll interject here is that the hotline between the U.S. and the Soviet Union wasn't actually a phone wasn't a red phone. It was a uh, telegraph machine because they found out after the Cuban Missile Crisis, one of the best ways to communicate during these crises moments was by writing. Uh, you have a lot less confusion when you're trying to translate simultaneously two people speaking to each other. But if words are written down, there's some clear foundation for communication. So there wasn't necessarily a red phone. The phone is considered to be red, I guess, because of communism. But it was really like basically like a telegram machine 
they would go back and forth. Although I will say in 2016, I don't know if I'd want to negotiate a de-escalation of nuclear conflicts over text message because I've seen not, a lot yeah. lesser stakes become, uh, you know, major problems by, uh, you know, miscommunication over text message. So I, I could just see a text message, uh, a nuke, LOL. Right. Um, now, can I just note that I find, I find it interesting. I actually didn't know. It's funny. I took a class on it. We watched the Daisy ad, but we moved on to kind of other eras of campaign mm-hmm. politics. I didn't know there was a second ad with a girl with the ice cream cone and watching that ad. And you said it, that that aired, you know, like a week later, one week one later. Week yeah. later I mean, maybe that just reflects the current environment we're in where you have campaign ads where they find one message or one ad that's effective and they play it over and over and over and over again. Sometimes they'll make one ad into three different variations of it and just continue mm-hmm. to hammer people with it. I just found that so interesting that they would they, – they said, wow, this one Daisy ad was so effective. So rather than just play it again, because I assume that would still have the same effect – and I imagine not everyone had seen it simply a week later. They said, let's cut a different ad, which I thought was less effective. So I, well, I think we'll get to that a little bit. But there was some uh, real debate. Uh, I don't know if the ad people thought about this, but there was definitely people after the fact that I thought about this. People that do psycho- psychological studies on how people handle stressful things like nuclear war. If you keep hitting someone about the fear of nuclear war or uh, some sort of crises over and over and over again, eventually there's a fatigue sure. that sets yeah. in. They become numb to the situation and each marginal utility goes down after each display of the ad. So their strategy was we'll hit one ad, be very scary, and then we'll keep hitting the same theme but from different angles. So you don't get that fatigue that comes about. So like some of the other ads that were done – uh, one that ended the campaign was a 20-second ad that just had imagery of nuclear weapons exploding and a voiceover from Goldwater saying why he thought nuclear weapons were just uh, another weapon. So these, all these ads, the thing that tied them all together at the very end that would say the stakes are too high for you to stay home. But I'll, I'll, some other kind of interesting things about this ad in particular, it has its roots in a public service announcement done by a sound effects artist named Tony Schwartz. He made an ad in 1962 for the United Nations that featured, uh, one, a child, two, countdowns, very scary countdowns, and three, nuclear explosions. So there was a dispute when these group, this Tony Schwartz and the people at DDB, got together to talk about an ad. There was disputes later on about who actually came up with it and who was more responsible. It seems to be some sort of a combination of the two, but definitely with inspiration coming from Schwartz's prior work. What the ad agency added... It's hard to say. What's the zoom in effect on the child's eyes, which they borrowed from a French film technique by Francois uh, Truffaut, something along those lines. Uh, from his ni- yeah. Truffaut, thank you. Uh, from his 1959 movie, The 500 Blows. Uh, I remember that. I watched I that in a film class. Is it 500 or 400? Uh, it might be the 400. Some blows. number of some number yeah. of blows. But the, it's actually interesting because it's similar to the end of Failsafe. When you have all those like static images, oh, yeah. we, of we talked about in that. New York City, yep. yeah. So City City Lumar appears to have also kind of drawn from that same uh, very popular technique at the time. So I, I think it's fascinating all these different connections. The child, I guess, who was in that original ad, uh, her name is uh, Monique Corzelius, Corzelius, um, something along those lines. I'm sorry to mispronounce that. She was three years old, and she went by her stage name, which is easier to pronounce, uh, Monique Cozy. 
uh, which I guess is a good at good name for a she child's has, uh, She has a stage name in H3. That's impressive. Well, she had done a lot of work before. She did ads for Lipton, Kodak Films, SpaghettiOs, uh, or Cool Pops, a bunch of different things. And funny enough, she actually didn't see the ad until she was 49 years old, uh, which was in 2000. Wow. So she didn't see the ad. In, she, seen, she said she's seen clips, but she didn't see the full ad itself. Wow. Um, and, the, and the ad agency picked her because she had red hair and brown eyes. She stood out from the other 30 or so kids that had... Her uh, black and white had, video. Uh, auditions. <laughs> yeah, I, I, exactly. But it stood out. Her parents made about $105 for the ad. Not, not bad, I assume, back in the day. But the funny thing was her parents uh, and her, three-year-old, didn't even know what the ad was for. They just basically told her to go in this field, start picking petal flowers... They didn't know about it until the commercial was released later on, and friends and family, particularly the grandmother, called the family up and said, did you know your daughter was just on television? Newt? What do we do about that? So they got a little bit of con- uh, backlash to that. Wait, so, so they didn't even know it was for a campaign advertisement? It was. It could have been they had, they had no, no idea. No idea. Yikes. Yep, but I, I think the biggest controversy of this entire situation was the flower that she was picking the petals off of wasn't even a daisy. It was a dandelion. I think that's the big travesty of this entire situation. <laughs> the daisy ad doesn't even have it. The flower was a dandelion. I think that's really what we should get super well, critical. Yeah, well, yeah. well, I was going to say that, that does make me think of today's advertisements or political attacks. You know, the, the best way to counterattack is you attack the messenger, right? Like someone attacks you on national security and then you attack their credentials or integrity on national security issues you turn their greatest uh, strength into a, a weakness so i could see a bunch of talking heads on like cnn to you know tomorrow be like well i mean clearly she wasn't even she didn't even have a daisy so can we really trust what she's saying on nuclear policy clearly no and she's three so what does she know i bet she doesn't have a, she doesn't have an advanced degree right right i mean yeah. not even undergraduate come on uh, nothing. Well, um, a scholar who looked at the use of children in political advertisement, her name is Susan Scher, she said the ad was so effective because even though nuclear war affects adults and children alike, you know, when a city blows up, it's, it does discriminate against your age. The ad, because it focused primarily on children, it, quote, triggered emotions different than those that endangered adults might evoke. In particular, she says the ad reframes nuclear defense policy as an issue of protecting children rather than a complex set of issues involving the preservation of all humanity. This wasn't really about nuclear policy as much as it was protecting your child, which you could argue is the ultimate um, reason behind saying effective nuclear weapon strategy, which could involve not having them in the first place. It seems like the ad had, because of its use of a child, it was particularly effective. And then some of these other ads that could have just focused on the U.S. and the Soviet Union and NATO policy and all that. Some in the in the White House uh, thought that there might be too much backlash from this ad. Bill Moyers, who at that particular time was the press secretary for Johnson, when they saw the ad at the White House for the first time, he was the first one to speak. He said, it's wonderful, but it's going to get us in a lot of trouble. Johnson didn't like the sound of his voice, uh, how it was reproduced, but he nevertheless said at the end, quote, good job, boys. So, so it seems like he enjoyed it, but they were worried about how the ad was going to be shown, because it's very controversial for the time. So the White House plan was, we're going to show the ad one time. Then if there's controversy about it, we're going to pull the ad. And we're going to say, hey, we're sorry. 
Uh, you know, we never really wanted to run this. The vice presidential nominee said he never approved it. And it became this whole thing about like, okay, well, it's already out there. We're not going to show it again. And the fact that it didn't show the president's image, it ended with some sort of thought and love rhetoric about hopeful message for the future. All of these things combined, plus the fact that it didn't mention Goldwater by name, was their ability to push back and say, this isn't a negative ad. This is just a discussion. It's an issue ad in, in some way. But, of course, the White House switchboard lit up uh, with protests. LBJ was at a dinner when the ad was released, and he pretended to call Moyers and complain loudly in front of his dinner guests, saying, "I, ah, why would you even do this? But it was clear from the sound of his voice to Moyers that he was, he was kidding. And as you were talking about earlier, news stations ran the ad in their nightly news reports for days. They quoted complaints that the ad was a horror-type commercial designed to arouse basic emotions and has no place in this campaign. And because of the criticism by the campaign and other GOP leaders, it kept the ad in the news. So even though they only ran the ad once officially, people kept showing it over and over and over again. And this was a fact that was later acknowledged by the Goldwater media strategist, uh, Charles Lichtenstein, uh, who said we should have just shut up about the ad. Some people even suggested that Goldwater should have essentially agreed with the ad because it didn't call him out by name. He would have agreed with the ad, offered to pay for half of it for it to be shown over and over again, which would have in a way possibly deflected some of the criticism and shown that he was also concerned about the threat of nuclear war. But it was because the backlash from Republican circles ensured that the ad would be a topic of debate over and over again as the Johnson campaign ran other ads. Uh, that were similar. So yeah, so that was one of the reasons why this ad was so effective was because it was only shown once, but yeah, over and over again, the news kept Yeah, running. well, and then, uh, you know, I think you mentioned this, but I was reading uh, about it as well. When it came out, then all of a sudden Goldwater was on the defensive saying, well, you, you took my comments too far. Here's what I was meaning to say in this situation, or here's what I was trying to say when I talked about this or that with this mm -hmm. or that speech. And it put him on the defensive which just ensured more scrutiny because it's, well, let's go back to what you did say and let's pull up that speech. And, and it, did you really mean to say it like this? Are you really comfortable using nuclear weapons in this scenario or that scenario? Yeah, not, not a position a campaign wants Right, because then you're, you're immediately in that. You're in that posture of having to kind of split hairs of, well, I'm okay with using nuclear weapons here but not there. And uh, you're kind of put into a corner where if you don't say anything, then you let that advertisement kind of define you, right? Um but if you do say something and you, you're not disciplined and, or, and you're not thoughtful in what your response is, you can potentially continue the news coverage. Well, it was uh, an interesting piece to that because, the, the, like I said, the Johnson campaign wasn't sure about how they wanted to play this. Because Johnson was trying to, in his overall campaign strategy, run as the, quote, peace candidate. Which is very fascinating now looking back on it because he was the one who escalated the war in Vietnam. His idea of being a peace candidate was later on seen as, as very uh, a, a big contrast to what ultimately happened. But because they focused so much on Barry Goldwater, there wasn't a lot in the campaign on Vietnam policy in particular. A lot of these issues just got pushed to the side and then eventually came back up, and the public didn't have a way to vet his Vietnam policy and his, his worries that he would have to escalate the war. But Johnson was also worried about overdoing it, on the atomic theme, he actually pulled some ads, including one about a, a showed a pregnant woman and her daughter walking through a park with a voiceover talking about nuclear testing dangers. He said, "No, that's that's too much." One more thing I want to add here is is that the uh, within the Johnson administration, there was debate about whether or not 
um, we would even do this ad because I know civil rights, the Civil Rights Act had been passed, and that was where a lot of Republicans thought that they could gain some ground there because this campaign, one of the big legacies of it is that it shifted the political alignment in the country. It used to be Democrats had a big stronghold in the South, and because the Democrats under Johnson and Kennedy supported the civil rights movement, that shifted in this entire process. So that's what we still see uh, quite a bit today. The only states that Johnson lost was Arizona, where Goldwater was from, and the Deep South. And essentially, that's where the political parties are today in terms of their their base. At that time, uh, Robert Kennedy, who was the, I think he still was the Attorney General, thought that we should focus a lot more in that campaign on the economy, some more basic issues for voters. But LBJ, because he had just received this, this, this discussion from his uh, press secretary about why they're the polls show that mothers worry about whether or not their child is drinking contaminated milk from nuclear testing or that babies are going to be born with two heads because of radiation. These things kind of got into his, his mind, and he pushed back on RFK and said, nope, we're going to do this. And you can see in his convention speech, he talked about why there's no place in the world for weakness, but there's also no place in today's world of, for recklessness. We cannot act rashly with the nuclear weapons that could destroy us all. It is the only course to press with all of our mind and all of our mind and will to make sure that, that these weapons are never actually used, which is, sounds a lot familiar because that's similar to Clinton's line in her convention speech about, quote, a man you can bait with a tweet is not a man you can trust with nuclear weapons. So you see these similar themes being developed uh, over and over again. So let's go to legacy. Let's talk a little bit about where this uh, bomb away campaign, what effect it has on today, because... Political ads nowadays are largely based on emotional appeals. That's the new standard. Gone are the days of an ad being 30 minutes long. Although I remember at the end of the 2008 campaign, Obama had so much money left, he ran a 30-minute commercial. And it was, but it was unique. It was like novel. But nowadays, we have a lot more 30-second, one-minute spots, including a number of ones done by the Clinton campaign, following the same lines as this Daisy ad. First, she did a, a commercial called Confessions of a Republican, which used the same actor from a Johnson 1964 spot that was about Goldwater. They released this in July 2016, but instead had that same actor, you know, several years older, talking about Donald Trump. And the first of these nuclear ads was called Silo, which was a TV ad in early October 2016. It showed Bruce Blair, who's a former Minuteman missileer and now a scholar at Princeton, who argued that self-control was the only thing that could stop the use of nuclear weapons, self-control by the president. I spent many years as a nuclear missile launch officer. If the president gave the order we had to launch the missiles, that would be it. I prayed that call would never come. Self-control may be all that keeps these missiles from firing. I would bomb the out of them. I want to be unpredictable. I love war. The thought of Donald Trump with nuclear weapons scares me to death. It should scare everyone. I'm Hillary Clinton, and I approve this message. In October 31, Halloween, the Daisy ad was revisited. Monique makes her reappearance on the stage. This was me in 1964. I was in the Daisy ad, which was a political commercial. The fear of nuclear war that we had as children, I never thought our children would ever have to deal with that again. And to see that coming forward in this election is really scary. A foreign policy expert went to advise Donald Trump, and three times he asked about the use of nuclear weapons. If we have them, why can't we use them? 
I want to be unpredictable. Wouldn't you rather, in a certain sense, have Japan have nuclear weapons? Saudi Arabia we nuclear have weapons? Saudi Arabia, absolutely. What safeguards are there to stop any president who may not be stable from launching a nuclear attack? The commander-in-chief is the commander-in-chief. Bomb the s*** out of him. Vote for Hillary Clinton on November 8th. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. It ends with a line quoted similar from the Johnson ad. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. Well, I, I thought it, was, it is noteworthy in that it is not a direct remake of the Daisy ad. I've heard a couple people refer to it as, oh, Clinton's Daisy ad. But I mean, yeah, it's not a, it's not a remake. Right. And I, and I thought th that would have taken it in, in a different direction. I, you know, I thought, going back to what I was saying about just providing someone else's quotes and, and being more objective, they do do that, seem much more geared towards less that general emotional appeal of nuclear war being a reality and much more an emotional appeal to those who lived through that Cold War era in the 60s and 70s and maybe into the 1980s where, and you see with the, the actress who was in the original Daisy ad, she's the kind of the focus, the, the introduction of that mm -hmm. ad. And, you know, you, typically that's the, the nice person in their home talking about why they trust the candidate for X or Y reasons. And, you know, you, I mean, again, every single thing is intentionally done. So having a, a middle-aged woman, you could either, you could have that or you could have a 17-year-old boy or you could have an 80-year-old veteran. Like you, you put in place particular people, particular demographics because, you know, that's how campaign politics are done. So you're trying to orient the, the audience a little bit. I think it's clearly focused on winning over those baby boomers, folks in maybe their 50s, 60s, 70s, who remember that ad, remember the fallout, pun intended, of that election, <laughs> where temperament, extremism, quote unquote, was a topic du jour, to then say, hey, remember that? Remember when you lived through that? Which I think is very different than if they did a shot-for-shot -shot remake. Because if you if you showed that Daisy ad to even someone my age, I, I only really know the ad because I literally you know I took class on it, uh, and you know I'm somewhat of a political nerd, so you, you hear you see articles make references to it. But an 18 year old who's going to vote, you know, this election for the first time, and you showed that ad to them, uh, you know, it wouldn't have the emotional resonance, obviously, because it's a different era, and you know if you gave them the backstory, but that's a lot of backstory. So um, mm -hmm. so I, I think it's telling in how they presented the Daisy ad for a new generation, because it wasn't, it wasn't for a new generation. It was to remind that, that other generation in our community, Hey, remember these points about extremism and recklessness? That's what we're talking about today. It was very much, it wasn't a remake of the ad. It was like a nostalgic appeal to those that had lived through that. Right. Other people have thought along similar lines. Uh, I know someone that you really enjoy, Larry Sabato. Uh, who is a political analyst and political scientist at the University of Virginia, he says that the DNA of the Daisy ad can be found in political ads basically ever since that 1964 election. You can see similar negative ads ever since then. You have the, the Hillary Clinton 2007 3 a.m. phone call, similar to the, the LBJ uh, hotline ad. You have the Swift Boat ads uh, against uh, John Kerry in 2004. You have the ads against Romney in 2012, which have him um, singing America the Beautiful with imagery 
of empty streets and boardrooms and, and closed uh, corporations and newspaper headlines. That was just uh, very strongly trying to driven towards the emotional side of uh, campaigns. You have the, the infamous Willie Horton ad against uh, Michael Dukakis in 1988, which heavily drawn on uh, emotional appeal. On the flip side, you also have some very positive ads that were less about facts and more about uh, an emotional pull. You have Ronald Reagan's 1984 Morning in America uh, political ad campaign. Bill Clinton released a bio uh, ad called Journey in 1992. Then even recently, Bernie Sanders had a TV spot that just a song about people looking, uh, it's called America, uh, looking for America, which really just didn't really have any sort of argument. It was just, it was a positive image trying to draw you in on an emotional level. But Larry Sabato, again, lamented the trend of these kind of ads. He said, this type of campaigning never really addresses the real issues that Americans care about or what they should be focusing on. Puts emotional triggers above issues like education or an economic plan or, you know, the war in Vietnam. And it puts it on the things that the campaigns would like to focus on. And because of how popular these ads are, that's where the news goes as well. And it keeps news agencies and, and other people who are supposed to be observing this election and commenting and, and providing uh, an education to uh, voters. It puts them on that as uh, other focus. And it also introduces the role of money into campaigns. It makes you have to be able to pay for these kind of advertisements. means fundraisers are much more important, too. Even people like... Um, Moyers, Bill Moyers, who was the press secretary for Johnson, and some of the people who worked at that ad agency, DDB, later uh, questioned if they went too far in portraying Goldwater as a trigger-happy maniac and Johnson as a peace-loving president, given the escalation of Vietnam. So they, they worried about whether or not what they did had an effect. Even the person who was in the ad, uh, Monique Cozy, she later said that she didn't like, she wasn't proud of the fact that it appears that negative campaigning on driven on emo by emotions came out of her role there. A lot of people involved in this have mixed opinions, but it's pretty clear that there was a legacy left from this. Yeah, I, I kind of go back and forth a little bit for two reasons on, on some of these issues, just because, I, I mean, I personally as a voter, but I think broadly as, you know, a political nerd, you know, I see that temperament is an issue to to some extent. After the, the Clinton Daisy ad, we'll call it that, you know, there were articles about you know, okay, this brings up the issue of temperament and having Donald Trump's finger on the button for nuclear weapons. And it's an emotional trigger, to use your word, Tim, but it does get you talking about kind of the fundamental issue of, do I trust this person, whoever might be elected, to deal with education? Do I trust them to deal with the nuclear the nuclear codes and stuff like that? I mean, it's, it's not an... In, and I was reading one article on, I think it was Vox, they quoted some, I forget the name of the writer, but he wrote a, a book on... Maybe we can include it in the comments. But it, it was looking at presidents just being able to, I think it was a quote from Dick Cheney about how he can, the president can walk into a room and 25 minutes later, 70 million people can be dead because there's no real restraint on the president's ability. And so the article is talking about that is actually true. You know, it, it wasn't going too far or stretching the truth to say that the president does have that ability, that finger on the trigger. So, you know, again, as a personal voter, I think, to some extent, temperament is fair game, and it's also isn't it's also isn't a one sided affair. I, I sure. know I've seen I've seen some ads from Republican circles against Hillary Clinton that are almost more like the Daisy ad than her Daisy remake mm -hmm. ad, who basically who have quoted Hillary Clinton's position on why we need a no fly zone over Syria. Mm -hmm. Other people have said uh, if you need a, if you want a no fly zone, you may have to uh, defend that against Russian pilots. 
in that area and why that might escalate to some sort of conflict with Russia, which could escalate to nuclear war. So some people have done comparisons between that ad and the Daisy ad by Clinton. And then you have this like, who's daisier than the other Daisy? And then I guess the, the other thing that came to mind was everyone talks about how they hate negative ads and how they want to stick to the issues. But at the end of the day, a lot of those negative ads do work and they, they would not have proliferated yeah. if they hadn't been effective. I, th- I think you've seen some elections. Uh, what was it? Maybe it was the maybe it was the most recent primary where they were. Uh, I forget what the states were, but they were looking at how after so many negative, after so much negative advertising, you start to have diminishing returns. Where you know, mm-hmm. like like you're saying, you know, after you play it so much, you get desensitized to it. They have worked in the past, so I mean, as much as people say, "Oh, I, I really wish they would." not be so nasty towards each other and focus on the issues. A lot of people say that, but they're still going to pay attention to the negative advertising and they still are being swayed. And I think that's what some of the Johnson people that later defended the ads. It was, they're not um, necessarily making stuff up. You know, they didn't use his direct quotes all the time, uh, Goldwater's direct quotes, but they were hitting on what the public already believed about Goldwater. Yeah. A fast, a fascinating uh, approach to political advertising and you did see a couple ads uh, where they they only took Donald Trump's quotes from like the primary debates or other speeches, and the entire thing was just that. And it was imagery, and it was imagery of, of children watching right, this right. Uh, these quotes being played on like television. Right. So again, an emotional pull. Right. Right. Yeah. Very reminiscent. If you, if you think about it, if you take it outside of the nuclear context, very similar to our children connecting it to this purported candidate's you know comments. Um, and then I was going to say, the, the other thing we saw was uh, the Clinton campaign cutting ads where they took only Republicans, either their former his former primary uh, opponents or other prominent Republicans in the national security sphere or elected officials, can, you know, criticizing Donald Trump, saying, you know, well, he has been able to unify the country. And, you know, the implication being in criticizing Donald Trump. Yep. Well, Election Day is tomorrow. We're all annoyed uh, about how long it's taken and all the different ads on TV. And if you want to find out more about why we're in this situation that we're in, advertising-wise, I have two places uh, for you to go to. One, a great book by Robert Mann, who I think I already mentioned earlier, uh, called Daisy Petals and Mushroom Clouds. LBJ, Barry Goldwater, and the ad that changed politics forever, published by the uh, Louisiana State University Press in 2011. This is a great book. Uh, a lot of what I talked about today is drawn uh, from this particular book, and there's a lot of great original documents, original source documents, in the back of that book, uh, where you can kind of learn more about uh, this process. One other place, too, uh, is the documentary you can find on YouTube in full called Bombs Away. It was a project done by the Community Ideas Station in collaboration with the University of Virginia Center for Politics, which is run by Larry Sabato. It's about 40 minutes long, uh, so it's a very good look at uh, where we are uh, today because of uh, that process before. And I'll also put in the show notes uh, that book that Joel mentioned earlier, about the role of the president in launching uh, nuclear weapons and all of that. And also, make sure to go vote. Uh, We talk a lot about the political campaigns and advertising, but ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, the ads don't matter. What matters is your vote. So we'll include some information, if you don't already know, uh, about where your polling place is. We'll have that in the show notes. If you have the time, check it out, and uh, be sure to go vote. Thanks for listening to another mini-nuke episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we overthink nuclear issues, whether they're movies, TV, or heck, even at political advertisements. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, 
We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter, at Nuclear Podcast. We're on Facebook. Uh, we also have an email account waiting for your email, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you would consider uh, subscribing on iTunes or Google Play uh, and leaving a review wherever you listen to the show. It's really helpful to grow the audience, and where we love uh, hearing from you and what you think. Until next time, this has been Tim. And Joel. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.